We're going to continue looking in the book of 1 Timothy this morning. Um, and as we do, uh, we're talking about correct doctrine meeting faith. That's what the book of 1 Timothy is about. You get the doctrine right, it impacts how you live, what you do in your everyday life. And so this morning as we look at correct doctrine, we're coming to a part of 1 Timothy that is, is preached on uh, probably least of any topic in the Bible. So what topic can you think of that preachers get a bad rap for preaching about? What's the one thing, if a guest walks in, it happens to be the Sunday, the preacher's preaching on it, and everybody's, it's money, right? That's the thing, and preacher's preaching on tithing, and people hate it when the preacher preaches on tithing. Can I tell you this morning, we're going to look at a passage of scripture that is preached on less than preachers preach on tithing. As a matter of fact, it's probably more uncomfortable for preachers to preach on a passage like 1 Timothy 5, 17 and following than it even is on money. And I want to confess to you that one of the blessings of preaching through a book of the Bible is being able to hit passages that I've never preached on before. So I've never preached a passage like this anywhere in Scripture before from the pulpit. Shame on me for neglecting a portion of God's Word. But it's awkward, and you'll know as soon as we get the title uh, of respecting elders, it's awkward for a pastor to stand up front and say, here's all the reasons why you should respect me as your pastor. As a matter of fact, can we set that aside for just a moment? Not set aside what the scripture says, but set aside who's delivering the message and just approach the word of God together. Because what I have found is that that most preachers do not, on their own, choose passages about respecting elders in their regular sermon series. And so as we preach through this together, there's some, some very pointed points of accountability that are really directed towards me and towards you to keep me accountable. And there's some really pointed directions for a church and how they are to interact with a pastor and elders. Now, I think it's helpful before we dive into this to, to get an understanding of what an elder is. We don't have the title of elder at First Baptist Church. Um, some churches do have official elders, and they're structured in a specific way. In the New Testament, particularly in pastoral writings, which is 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, uh, and, and those books, we find two offices. One is of overseer, and one is of deacon. And that word overseer sometimes also is called an elder. Um, overseers and elders are usually interchangeable. As a matter of fact, there are some places where Paul, in a matter of just several verses, uses both terms referring to the same person. So we get to elders, and we, we understand there are elders, overseers, and deacons. Our church has deacons. That's a word we're familiar with. They are servants of the church, those who invest in the church body and serve and carry on the ministries of the church in an official office. And then the elders and overseers function differently in different churches. At First Baptist Church, we would refer to our elders and overseers as pastor in some churches, particularly congregational churches, which is what we are, people where the, the congregation makes decisions, has pastors serve as elders slash overseers. Some larger churches, there are multiple pastors that are called there. But then there are some churches who have a distinct role of elder that is separate from the pastor, and they function in a way that kind of oversees ministries in the church, and, and the deacons serve the, the body in, in a different way. And so there's lots of different ways that churches apply this. I think what's important before we dive into this is the way First Baptist is kind of structured. 
is that we have overseers, elders who function in the role of pastoral ministry and deacons at our church that that take on some of those elder responsibilities. That's not biblical or unbiblical. It's how most Baptist and congregational churches have ordered and structured their leadership within the church. So an elder refers to specifically the pastor, but it also includes leadership in the church that would include our deacons to an extent. For the purpose of what Paul is trying to hit on, it seems like the church in Ephesus that he's writing to had deacons separate as servants, and he is speaking specifically to overseers, elders, and pastors. And so we're going to dive into reading 1 Timothy chapter 5, and right starting in verse 17 and following, we're going to read uh, the honor of an elder. If you're taking notes, you can read several sections in this passage. And the first is how we are to honor the elders and the pastors of a church. Verse 17, he says, Let elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Can you see why pastors often don't choose this? Already, I'm getting uncomfortable. Because it's weird to stand up here and say, Hey, church, let me put on my Captain America shield and honor me as the first Avenger of First Baptist Church. It's just kind of awkward. So again, let's set aside the awkwardness and read what Scripture is teaching. We see in the book of Timothy kind of a, an escalating level of honor. Last week we saw two of them. One of them doesn't mention the word honor in the first couple verses of chapter 5, but it does talk about respecting of elders and those younger as family members. Then there is a sense of honor with widows or those who are in need, those who are serving in spite of their need. We're to honor them, and we talked about those last week. And now you have a sense of double honor with elders, and next week when we dive into chapter 6, you're going to see some who are deserving of great honor or the greatest honor. So here we have elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor. Well, the question then is, what does he mean by double honor? Verse 18, he's certainly going to talk about a financial aspect to that, but I don't think that's primarily what he's mentioning. We're not going to ignore that because it's in verse 18, but that's just part of it. And the honor I believe he's getting to in verse 17 is those elders who rule well are worthy of respect. So this word double can mean both respect and payment, double, right? Or this word double most likely refers to the idea in the first century of the Jewish firstborn receiving a double inheritance from his family. So it's almost as if he is saying in the church there is a special recognition and place for those who God calls as pastor. And you ought to respect them as such. This word double honor would have resonated with them because many of them would have understood the cultural context of having an older brother who had a special place in the family. Now, Paul's going to make it very clear later on in this passage that that does not mean that a pastor is somehow above, any more so than an oldest son was above his younger siblings. Instead, there is a, a co-equal inheritance in Christ. But within the church, there is a, uh, a responsibility that elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. 
A couple of weeks ago, we looked at some qualifications of an elder, and what we found in chapter 3 was a list of characteristics. An elder should be like this, but no list or definition of roles. What is an elder supposed to do? It might surprise you to know that there's very little said in Scripture what the responsibilities and roles of elders or deacons are. It doesn't say, and an elder shall do A, B, C, and D. Instead, like in chapter 3, it says an elder should live in this way. The characteristics of an elder should reflect this godly standing. But this particular verse, this particular verse is specifically giving us two rules and roles. Right? This is giving us two specific roles. One, an elder who rules well, rules well, should be considered worthy of double honor. The first command for an elder is that he rule well. Better translated, probably in the New American Standard Version, as lead well, or in the New International Version, as direct the affairs of the church well. This is not an authoritative rule. This this is not the, the elder of a church ought to king over a congregation. This is to lead and shepherd. That word shepherd is often used. The word pastor actually means to shepherd He's to to lead and guide a congregation in a way that they grow in their faith. So a first defined role of an elder is that they they lead well, they rule well, they direct the affairs of the church, and they shepherd well. And the second is they labor in preaching and in teaching. It is the responsibility of an elder, of a pastor, to bring the word of God and teach it to the congregation. This word label, or labor in the original language is, is kind of an emphatic labor. It's not just do some work, but it's this idea of hard work and toil. Some of you have filled the pulpit in my absence. Some of you have done it very, very well. There's been a handful of people in our church who have, who have preached in times past. And can I tell you, preaching is more exhausting than you would think it is. I would encourage you, he, he's not wrestling this morning, but I would encourage you to ask Jordan, Young, or, or Jordan Caballero what it was like to, to get up in front of all of these faces and preach the Word of God. With him at wrestling this morning is Joe Cunningham, who has stood before us and delivered the Word of God faithfully. I want to encourage you to go talk to a retired minister like Clint and ask him about the hours he put in to preparing a sermon each week. This idea is not that... A, A preacher is supposed to stand up and open the Bible wherever it falls and just read it and hope the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit does. An elder who does things well labors and strives and studies and works to know the Word of God so he can share it with the congregation. This is not just any lay person. This is an elder and a, a ruling, a, a, a leading, shepherding man who is considered worthy of double honor. Verse 18, Paul specifically reminds them that that while Paul labored for free, not all elders should. He says, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. There's two applications here that we'll just hit on really briefly. The first is that a minister ought to be paid and paid worthy of double honor. That does not mean that a preacher ought to be wealthy, and this is a very important distinction. There are television evangelists who will tell you the job of a preacher is to accumulate and be rich because it shows the blessing of God. 
There was one TV evangelist several years ago. His name is Creflo Dollar. I'll go ahead and tell you, if your preacher's last name is Dollar and he's asking you for money, you probably don't want to trust what he's saying. But he had convinced his large congregation that he needed a jet to get from different church locations on each Sunday morning. Not just an airplane, but he needed a jet, a top-of-the-line jet that was going to cost millions of dollars for him to have so that he could fly from location to location to location. And the message that he would proclaim to them is, if God has blessed you, you ought to bless me and bless the church, and I ought to have this airplane, this jet. I'm going to go ahead and let you know, I'm not asking for a jet this morning. I don't want a jet. As a matter of fact, I don't even know how to fly a jet, and I don't even know anybody who could fly a jet. It's not the job of a pastor to be wealthy, but it is the job of a church to support their pastor. Can I tell you, First Baptist has done a phenomenal job in my six and a half years of doing that. There's several years ago, and we still have a Christmas ornament that we're reminded of every year of the generosity of First Baptist Church. It was right before Christmas when the transmission in our van died. And here we were trying to get Christmas presents ready, Christmas presents together for our kids, and we had a bill for about $3,000 to fix our van. And I will never, ever forget the generosity of our church to step in and pay for a big chunk of that. Because, not because I earned it or deserved it, but because they knew a pastor, an elder, was worthy of double honor. That year for Christmas, the church presented me with an ornament with a picture of that blue van we used to have. We don't have the blue van anymore, but we will forever have that ornament as a reminder of the generosity of First Baptist Church. The other application is not only uh, that we are supposed to support financially a pastor of the church, but that, that he has earned that financial support. It says the laborer deserves his wages. Now, unfortunately, I've been a part of churches in times past that looked to the pastor as somebody that they could manipulate and keep poor to keep in control. Served a church in Indiana, and I love the people dearly. But they made a decision, some of them, when they wanted their old pastor back, just a few, they wanted their old pastor back to make things as difficult as they could on the current pastor. And as much as I loved that church and the town of Batesville, Indiana, as much as I wish I could have stayed there my entire ministry, there were people in the church who decided they, they were going to hit the pastor in his pocketbook. We were a small church, a really small church. So we were week to week in our giving. And when they decided to stop giving for the purpose and hopes that they couldn't pay this pastor anymore, they neglected this teaching. The laborer deserves his wages. I tell you, church... I would do the ministry of God for free. I'm blessed that God has set up a system that can support my family so I can faithfully minister to the people at First Baptist and elsewhere. So there is an honor due to elders, and I'm thankful that the Scripture gives and shows an honor to pastors, but we understand a pastor is not above correction. And so Paul wants to make it clear that there is accountability when it comes to the elders and pastors of the church. So verses 19, 20, and 21, he writes, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God 
and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. There are times that a minister has to be addressed because of sin in his life. If you find a minister that does not have sin, then you need to come and hire him and replace me immediately. It does not exist. We are all fallen individuals. And there are times that pastors have to be corrected. How does Paul say to do this? He says, well, you need to go with two or three witnesses. Don't go with one person in their word. There needs to be several people who see the sin and are ready to address the sin with a pastor. By the way, this is consistent with the Old Testament law concerning all people. This is not unique to pastors. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, and Deuteronomy 19, 15 both have the same principle. Do not charge a person based on one eyewitness account. There needs to be two or three individuals who have recognized the same sin. I love what J. Vernon McGee writes in his commentary about 1 Timothy 5, 19. He says, if this procedure were observed, this procedure of two or three witnesses instead of one, it would cut down a great deal on the gossip and misunderstanding and the strife that goes on in our churches today. It seems like in Paul's era as he's writing this, and I will say goes on in churches even today, that we are quicker to judge elders than we are laypersons, which is probably why Paul goes on to say, do this without partiality. For some reason, it's easier for the pastor to be addressed than a church member to be addressed. It's easier to ask the pastor to change than it is to look at the hearts of individuals within the church. There's a lot of danger in one person stirring up strife. There's a lot of danger in an individual saying, I'm unhappy and I'm mad. And it seems like these churches, including the church of Ephesus, had an issue and a problem with with not properly addressing the sins or the the issues within the church. That doesn't mean that an elder or a pastor is beyond correction. Quite the contrary. Paul has some pretty harsh words for pastors who persist in sin. And that's a phrase that's used there, persist in sin. It's been my experience that a lot of times a church wants to address a pastor in all of his sin instead of a pastor who persists in his sin. We're unhappy that you did this, and so we're going to push things forward. As opposed to, we want you to correct this, and now that you have, we want to move forward with you. There are those who persist in sin, and it is, it is to my embarrassment on behalf of the church to say that we have served in two different churches that have had serious, sinful actions by their pastor. Not by me, but by the pastor who was serving as we served as youth minister. Our very first church we served was healing from a pastor who had had an affair and had left his family. The second church we served, how's this for starting your ministry? We served as a youth minister under a pastor who, while we were there, left his wife for the church secretary. These are pastors who are persisting in sin and refusing to change, who are acknowledging that they're in sin and proceeding with it anyways. It happens even to people who we presume to be godly men. There are some elders who persist in sin and must be confronted They continue in their sin and refuse to repent or make amends. They refuse to acknowledge their own sinfulness. 
So what do you do with an elder who persists in sin, who will not acknowledge his need for repentance? Well, Paul says in verse 20, you rebuke them in the presence of all. It's a whole church. I've always been taught, maybe you've been taught this, if someone is in sin, you're to go to them privately. Have you been taught that? As a matter of fact, that's part of our conflict resolution. It's biblical, it's Matthew chapter 18. You go to someone one-on-one and you say, here's where you need to correct things. The same thing needs to happen with an elder or a pastor. The same thing needs to happen with all individuals. You go and you say, here's, here's the sin that Scripture lays out and we need to correct. But I've always been taught, and I think it's a good principle, private sins can remain private. So if I know that you're involved in a sin, as your pastor, I want to come beside in a, a private setting and say, listen, this is what the Bible says, and this is what we need to correct. And prayerfully, that's where it ends, and we move forward in the Word of God together. If it doesn't, my goal as a pastor is still to keep the sin between you and God and, and just the people affected. But an elder, not so. It's strange to me that an elder of a church, a pastor of a church, if he persists in sin and will not correct the sin in his own life, is to be called before the entire church body. The whole assembly, it says, in the presence of all. Why is that? Why does a pastor have to be called out in front of an entire church? I think there's two reasons. One, because their persistent sin affects the whole church. If a pastor is in a sinful lifestyle, it affects the example and the ministries of the church. By the way, we see this throughout this book of 1 Timothy. There's divisiveness. He's continuing to cause divisiveness. These false elders, these false teachers are continuing to tear people apart. There's no signs of repentance. There's no signs of moving forward. There's no signs of ministry. It's just persistent sin, and it affects the health of the entire body. But Paul also says it's so that there's an example to others who are in persistent sin. It's to show that there is nobody perfect and that all of us can fall. So there are times when a pastor refuses to repent that the entire church needs to see even the pastor is not above correction. It's it's an example to other leaders in the church that we won't turn a blind eye to sin just because of, of a position that you hold. It's a reminder to the community that we have a standard that is not our personal standard, but the standard is the Word of God. If there's something that you know that I have done wrong, I would ask that you come and talk to me about it. I would love to have a conversation. There have been things, even recently, that I've had to apologize to people for, and I am more than happy to have conversations and talk through those things. I'm an imperfect person, but my hope and my prayer is that If you have an issue with a a leader at the church, that you would go to them directly and personally. If I'm persistent in sin, by all means, please let me know and please share that with the church. Just make sure it's in the presence of two or three witnesses and not just an individual who's upset. There's an honor for an elder. There's accountability for an elder. And there's also, Paul gives commands for how to appoint an elder in a church. The appointment of an elder, the calling of a pastor. He says in verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. This laying on of hands may imply the practice that we might call ordination. Some churches have an official service, an official structure by which they commission and appoint a minister to service. 
I am an ordained minister. The first church that we attended uh, was a, a church that I was able to participate in a service with other ministers and deacons in the town. They interviewed me. Now, there's a certificate of ordination sitting on my wall to say, New Hope Baptist Church of Versailles, Kentucky, ordains and commissions this man for service. There are a lot of churches who ordain deacons, ordain other leaders in the church, and this may have referred to some official uh, conveying of approval for a minister. But more likely, it implies the church just saying, we trust you. The laying on of hands is a way of saying, I'm giving you my support. He says, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. He gives a further explanation of what he means by this in verses 24 and 25. What he's saying is a man needs to prove himself before he's installed as an elder, as a leader of the church. He needs to reflect the character that we've seen in chapter 3. He needs to be someone who is able and proven to carry out the responsibilities that were given in verse 17. Then Paul says, don't partake or don't take part in the sins of others. Well, what sins is he talking about here? He could mean the poor elder's false teaching. Don't take part in a bad elder's false teaching, which leads others to sin. Or he most likely means this, that the church who lays on hands and approves a man to serve as an elder has responsibility for the sin that leads others astray. Don't be hasty in giving your approval to a pastor. Because if he leads people astray, you take part in responsibility for approving him. I believe that's what he's saying. I think he's tying it into that do not be hasty. Elders and pastors ought to be individuals that carry themselves in such a way that they are, according to chapter 3, above reproach. And when we convey that we support individuals who are unproven, we often get ourselves in trouble when they lead others into false doctrine. There are times that we partake in sin because we approve elders who should not be elders. And then I think there are times that we partake in the sins of others when we join in the false accusation of elders and show that far, false partiality. We have to be very careful with the elders that we appoint and how we treat them. We need to be very careful to keep ourselves from joining in the sin of others. He says in this verse, keep yourself pure, writing to Timothy as an elder. He says, don't follow that false teaching of bad elders or cave to immorality. This phrase, keep yourself pure, is kind of an interesting one. Um, it, it feels as an elder, as a pastor, something that is impossible to do. Keep yourself pure has a sense of keep yourself perfect. And boy, if that is what that means and that qualification is perfection, I don't know a pastor on earth who is able to serve. And I think Timothy felt some of that pressure as well. As a matter of fact, I think he felt that pressure from the other elders of perfection in certain areas because Paul gives a clarifying statement in verse 23. He says, keep yourself pure, and then my translation has this in parentheses. No longer drink water only, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. It seems like one of the false teachings in Ephesus was a teaching of asceticism. That is, restrain from certain things to make yourself a little more holy and a little better. It's very works-based. They were free to do all sorts of sinful actions, but if you just refrain from, say, the 
the, consum uh, the, the consuming of alcohol, or if you just restrained from some physical act, then you had a right standing with God. And Timothy may have fallen into this trap. He may have been too afraid to drink anything except for water, out of fear that he would be accused of being unholy. Paul says, listen, your stomach's bothering you. The water in the first century is contaminated. It can make you sick and adds to your indigestion. Drink a little bit of wine to settle your stomach. This verse may be the most misused verse of, of uh, individuals who want to drink alcohol. I'm going to go ahead and put all my cards on the table. This is a parenthetical verse. I'm going to give you a parenthetical sermon. I am an abstinence from alcohol person. I, I don't drink alcohol at all. Um, as a matter of fact, I, the last time I had even a sip of alcohol was, I think, on our cruise after we were married because they had a glass of champagne and Hannah wasn't even 21 and the guy's going, celebration, celebration, and we both kind of just, you know, licked the top of it. So we, we're abstinence from alcohol people. We, we just are. I can make a really good case why a Christian should abstain from all alcoholic beverages, period. I can make a really strong case for that. But I can also confess to you that nowhere in Scripture does it say, thou shalt not ever drink a glass of wine or have any alcohol. I, I can't find that in the Bible. I find a lot of reasons why it's unwise and a lot of dangers. And I would love to have a, a better conversation with you about that. But what this verse does not give us license to do is to drink excessively or, or even to drink at all. Matter of fact, you realize what the purpose of his drinking is. It's not for the alcoholic consumption. It's for the sake of his stomach and his frequent ailments. It's like Paul saying, take a little Pepto-Bismol. Right? Take, take a little bit of uh, a Tums. Juice and Tums. Do something because your stomach hurts, and this will correct it. I'll go further in saying, most likely the wine that he's asking Timothy to drink is what they would call new wine, unfermented. This is probably squeezed grapes that they referred to as wine. So Timothy wouldn't have to drink alcoholic beverage to ail his stomach. The water literally was contaminated, and most people who drank it in excess would be very sick. Paul says, don't fall into that asceticism that says you have to only drink water. It's making you sick. Drink a little bit of wine. That's kind of a, the parentheses there, right? He pauses and he says, don't fall into this false teaching. And then he brings it back in verses 24 and 25 to the don't be hasty in laying on of hands. It says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them in judgment. That word conspicuous can also mean obvious. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous or obvious, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. After his little parentheses, verse 23, Paul returns to his command, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands and appointing elders. He says, there are some sins that are obvious. You can see right away. You look at a person, you say, those sins would disqualify him from being an elder or a pastor. But he warns us that some sins follow behind. They're under the surface and you don't see them. They eventually will come to light. So if you give a person time to show themselves, their sins will be revealed. Observe, don't be hasty. In the same way, he says, there are some people who you look at and you say, they've got all the good qualities. I can see it in them. But there are others who you look to and you go, I just don't know about that person. Their good works are less obvious. Give them time. Their character will prove themselves over time and you'll see their faithfulness. A good application to this is that a lack of obvious good works does not mean that good works are absent. 
Just because you can't see someone's good works doesn't mean that they're not doing those good works. In the same way, a lack of obvious sin does not mean sin is not present. So some sins take longer to reveal themselves in a person's life. Thus the importance of not being hasty, of being patient when you appoint people to rule and to lead. The longer you can observe someone's character, the more likely their true character will be revealed. I want to close with a passage of Scripture in Hebrews that I think ties in nicely to what Paul is talking about here. We don't know who the writer of Hebrews are, who writer of Hebrews is, but this particular verse, he talks about those who are leaders in the church. And he reminds us that it doesn't do well to not support them. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls, as to those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for, what, for that would be of no advantage to you. Hebrews 13, 17 has always struck me as a very, a very convicting passage. Obey your leaders, submit to them. Why? Keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now, I have a responsibility as a pastor for leading your soul. I, I can't do it. You, you have to submit. I have a responsibility as a pastor. There are nights I go to sleep, try to go to sleep, and lay awake just thinking of individuals in our church who are hurting, who are struggling, and who have fallen away. I know it's not right, but I keep asking myself, what could I have done different? If I would have preached this sermon at this time, if I could have talked to them at this time, if I could have made this phone call or sent this card, if, if I would have done A, B, C, or D, and this verse of me having to give an account for the souls of the people of First Baptist Church, it's a very convicting and difficult passage to read. By the way, I, I think that's why. The, the stress of this accountability is why Paul says, honor and support your pastor. It's a hard job, guys. It is. You guys are an amazing church to serve, and I'm thankful for your faithfulness. And I hope and I pray that as we move forward together with what Paul writes in Timothy, that we can, we can do ministry together for years to come. I can't wait to see what God does through First Baptist as he calls me to lead you all. And I can't wait to see how God raises you up and lets you serve for his kingdom's sake. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much that you are a God who goes before us. Lord, several songs we've sang this morning have said, holy, holy, holy. Lord, you are perfect, you are right, and you do things well. So Lord, as you go before us, you are our example to follow. Father, I pray that you would make me more holy with each passing day. Forgive me as a pastor where I fail you, Allow me to be faithful to proclaim your word and to lead and shepherd this church. Lord, be with our church to be a supportive and loving church for the pastor and his family. Lord, to hold me accountable when I do wrong and to graciously move forward when it's time. Father, I thank you for the responsibility and I'm humbled. Lord, I pray I pray that as we move forward as a church, that you would give me strength, that you would give our church strength, and that we would see souls won because of our faithfulness, not to each other, 
but more importantly, our faithfulness to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.